Welcome to Where RA Now, a podcast dedicated to catching up with former RAs and hearing where their journey of life has taken them since their glory days at New York University. I am tonight's co-host, Ellie Leggett, a junior from Manchester, England, studying English literature and history, and I'm an RA in Lipton Hall. And I'm Tom Ellett, the other co-host, and I serve as the Senior Associate Vice President of Student Affairs. Ellie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to have you. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about that whole trip from the UK to yes. come to NYU. It was a long one. A Three, long one. 3,000 miles away. Have you enjoyed it? Yeah, it's very, very different to how I thought it would be and how my friends' experiences are at their schools. And I'm loving it. And they, you quite haven't shaken me off just yet. I hope not. I'm still here three years going. And I remember at uh, Welcome Day, you had an interesting visitor come to your room. I Who did. came to your room? So my first year on Moving Day and this year um, on Moving Day, Andy Hamilton uh, paid me a visit. President Hamilton. How did that happen? So first year, he was just outside of Lipton and I got to shake his hand. I got a picture of him with my roommate. And then this year, he was sort of doing a big tour of Lipton and he came to my floor, met some of my residents and then came into my room and with his lovely wife, Jenny. And I had all these British things on my wall and they loved looking at them. That's great. Tell me what's been your pinnacle moment at NYU today. That's a big one. I honestly don't know. I would just say working two weekend on the squares, I would say, is because that makes you realize why you're here. NYU-wise, I would say, is working the admitted student days a week on the square twice has been really good fun. But I mean, pinnacle, just like being part of this institution in general, going to spend my semester away in Sydney was oh. really cool. And you yeah. got to spend some time with our friends Marcus over at Sydney. Oh, Marcus and Laura. I love, I miss them. Great people. Great I'll send people. this to them and I'll, I'll Better. <laughs> he does a podcast over there too, he's telling me. so. Amazing. Yeah. So uh, excited about tonight's guest. I am. Can't wait to meet him. Yeah, because you have something in common. You may want to go into higher education mm-hmm. as a career. Yeah, debating it, throwing it around. Well, gonna From your recommendation, I'm definitely going to apply to grad schools. I'm glad And then see what happens from there. Great questions for asking our guest tonight. Tonight. Who's our guest tonight? Tonight our guest is Antonio Duran, who served as an RA in Goddard Res College for Justin Lerner, Ty Crisman and Taurus Mullins during the 2012-14 to 14 academic years. Welcome Antonio. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us on tonight's show. It's a real pleasure having you on. How are you today? I am doing so well. Happy to be spending some time with you all. Amazing. And where are you at the moment? Where are you coming to us from? Yeah, I'm currently in Columbus, Ohio, where I recently completed my PhD at Ohio State. Fantastic. Congratulations, Antonio. You are one of my favorites. You know that, don't you? Antonio and I have lots of connections. He was a scholar in a program that I work with, and he was an RA. So we want to hear about the journey that has happened for you since your days at NYU. Where did you, where did you go after Washington Square? Yeah, of course. So while I was an RA at NYU, I found a love for higher education and student affairs. And from NYU, I wanted to get a different experience and wanted to get a feel for a very different college environment. And that led me to Ohio. So I did my master's at Miami University in Ohio in student affairs and higher education. And then soon after completing my master's degree, I wanted to continue on with my education and found myself at Ohio State getting my PhD in higher education and student affairs. Very nice, very accomplished. I love that, um, academia. But let's jump back to your time at Washington Square. And then what did you study whilst you were here? Yeah, I was an English and American literature major in CAS. 
And then I also had minors in sociology and creative writing. Lovely. There's a lot of crossovers here, mm. Ellie. Wow. Um, <laughs> I know you are involved in extracurricular activities, and I know the list is long, but uh, tell us a few of those that really stuck out for you, Antonio, that helped you in your formation in building community and feeling like you are a part of community here at NYU. Yeah, of course. So as you mentioned, Tom, I definitely was your stereotypically over-involved student leader, but I had a few that really captured my heart and that I tried to put all my energy into. So while I was at NYU, I started a community service club uh, with a fellow NYU RA, Emily Stutt, called Puzzled for Good, where we, we would do puzzles with senior citizens as well as with kids. And then I was also NRHH president during my time at NYU. I was on the IRGC executive board at uh, my sophomore year, was the vice chair for the 1831 scholarship fund. Uh, so I was definitely keeping myself busy and running around Washington Square. And in the midst of all of that, did you always want to be an RA whilst you were here? I did. So I am a first-generation student. So going back to the scholars program that Tom had mentioned, specifically designed for first-generation students. So I had no idea what an RA was when I got to college. It wasn't until that first day where I met my first-year RA at Founders Hall, Rama Jack Kong, that I met him and I immediately knew that I wanted to be an RA because he was such a formative part of me feeling connected to founders and then by transitive property NYU. Really since that first week, I had that desire to become an RA that continued for two years until I was able to actually become an RA. I was also a summer assistant at Founders Hall between my first and second year. So I got a little bit of a taste for the RA position before I started. I was really excited about the possibilities of becoming a resident assistant. You're one of the most positive people I've ever met in my life, and that really helps in terms of collaboration with the team. What are some of the memories or some of the things that you benefited from you of being on a team, and how did you contribute to that team experience? Yeah, I mean, the a beautiful and amazing thing about, the, about Goddard specifically was that the team was made up of both undergraduate and graduate students. And I remember at the time feeling really special because of that, in the sense that I was constantly interacting with PhD students. We had Philip Brown was a law student, master's student. And so the, the team environment at Goddard and the residential colleges were really special because of that. And I feel like not only were we doing this work in getting, creating community amongst each other and amongst the students, but also pushing each other academically, once again, both for the students and ourselves. And that's what I really appreciated. So I got the chance to interact with RAs who were doing some really incredible work. And then in terms of the ways that I try to show up in that team environment, as you mentioned, Tom, I try to be a really positive person. And so I remember trying to get residents, trying to get staff really excited about what was going on at NYU, and then trying to be that connector as well and, and making sure that people knew that I was a, a bridge really to connect the residential colleges to the larger NYU community. Uh, so whether it was through the work that I would do in my stream, writing New York, whether it was being the RA liaison for the Glee Hall Council. Those were some of the things that I tried to contribute both to the students, but also to just the general staff at Goddard. Those relationships with your residents sound amazing. Do you still stay connected to any of them? So I think multiple people have mentioned this on the podcast, but it's the beautiful thing about social media. So I've been able to keep in contact with a lot of residents through that. And also, funny enough, through Snapchat, I'll get Snapchats every once in a while of residents hanging out with one another, 
really across the country and then across the globe. So those are some of my like favorite moments where I see people who met on our floor still being in contact with one another and still continuing on those kind of lifelong friendships, which has been awesome. It's never good to look back and, and kind of say, I missed out on something. But Antonio, you're such an involved um, student here, and so many of our RAs are. Is, is there anything you might have done differently or suggest to any of our overcommitted RAs to think about during their four years of the undergraduate experience? When I look back at my NYU experience, I try to be very intentional with my involvements. And even though I was involved, I also try to make sure that I took time for myself. And so every week I would have a personal time scheduled just because I'm a naturally scheduled person, but I would schedule out time to just close my door, watch a movie, take the time to breathe, take the time to reflect. In thinking about what I would tell current students, I think it's making sure that you are taking on opportunities, internships, club involvements in intentional manners. But in addition to that, also making sure that you're building in ways that you are going to rejuvenate, you're going to refresh, whether that is taking personal times. I also scheduled weekly dinners and lunches with friends. And so for me as an extrovert, those were my kind of refreshing and rejuvenating opportunities. But I definitely always would want to tell students that take advantage of everything that NYU and New York City has to offer, while at the same time, taking the time to reflect and taking it all in. Because I think that reflective aspect is always going to benefit you in the long run as you're making sense of your experiences during college. It seems like you have a real knack for organization, which I think is a big skill that people pick up when they're working this job. Are there any other skills that you sort of gained in this role? Yeah, so organization was definitely a big one. To this day, I think I've taken a lot of the tips and tricks and my love for my Google Calendar that I developed while I was in an RA. But in addition to that, as I think about other skills that I, I gained from the position, it really was one of the first times that I was able to start dabbling in the art of facilitation. So knowing how to facilitate conversations and dialogues, whether it is between two residents who are having a roommate conflict, or whether it was during our programs at the residential college and inviting speakers or doing a movie and then facilitating a conversation after that. And so a lot of those skills that I feel like I gained from behind closed doors and just general RA training are things that still stick with me today and when I'm teaching. So I'm always really grateful for for that. In addition to that, I think also a big skill is being able to bridge community aspects and academic-related opportunities as well. And so I know the residential college was, was such an amazing place in the sense that students were not only being socially integrated into the university, but also academically integrated. And so as a instructor now, I do my best to not only focus on the academic aspects, but also try to make sure that I'm creating a community within my classroom and within the program so that students get both this social fulfillment, but also being academically challenged. You made a decision in your career. You were a practitioner as a grad student doing some student affairs things to help offset your expenses and, and, and your experience in the classroom. What made you make the decision to say, I, I'm going to go in the professor art route rather than staying as a practitioner in student affairs? Yeah. So I, I, I will say, Tom, you were a big part of that. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm a first-generation student, right? So first in my family, you go to college. 
much less get uh, a graduate degree. So in my master's program, I had the opportunity to teach a few undergraduate classes. I started doing research with a doc student at the time and another faculty member, and I found such a strong love for it. And so while I came into student affairs thinking that I wanted to make an impact on college students, the institutional level, I started envisioning myself being able to make a bigger impact through research and teaching. And so with that in mind, I had been asking myself, well, should I go for the PhD? Should I make this happen? And I brought that to a couple of people and they, and they said, you should really take some time, take some time, work for a few years, and then go, go at that time, if you feel like you're ready, go into the PhD. And then Tom, you and I were having a conversation at a conference. And I remember a distinct moment where you were asking me about what I was going to do after I get my master's. And you stopped me in the middle of the conversation. You just said, you were going to be such a great faculty member. Why are you not going into a PhD? And at that moment, you really turned, I think, my, my world upside down because I had made the decision I'm going to work for a few years. And with that, it almost felt like you were, you had given me the permission that I had not given myself yet to make it a reality. And following that conversation, I went back to faculty, to mentors, to really good friends, and made the decision that I was going to take the leap and apply to PhD programs. And it has been, I think, one of the best decisions I could have possibly made since then. Well, you're such a great teacher and facilitator that I think that the students are really blessed to be in your classroom because I think you make people think. And that's the most important thing that faculty members can do, uh, really put that wisdom uh, that there's a chance there that they can think differently about things and, and explore. Be curious. Ellie, be curious. I will be curious. I know you will be. <laughs> um, and listening to you sort of like talking through your decision of going along this route and going along the PhD route, I feel like I'm sort of at that crossroads now myself. And the question that I'm that's going through my head a lot is where am I going to go? Like what if, if I do want to do this master's degree in higher education, where should I go? What city do I, do I be in? What country do I be in? So what, what was the process for you in selecting an institution for both your master's and your doctorate? Yeah, definitely wonderful questions to be asking. I will always be the first person to say that I've made decisions largely through my emotions and through my heart. It has been when I've gone to institutions and when I've visited institutions that once I find those connections to people, then that's when I know I've made a good choice. That being said, I think there are some important things to consider along the way, right? For for graduate school and higher education and student affairs, making sure that you're getting valuable experiences. So how is it that the program is building in assistantships or practicums, which we typically talk about those out-of-classroom work experiences that bolster your education? Other things to consider are who are the faculty in the programs? Are they asking the types of questions that you find yourself asking right now as an undergraduate student? And if so, I think those are really great places to go because they're going to be the ones to push you along in your thinking. One of my mentors, Marissa Coweaton, who is also an NYU Res Life staff alum, gave me really good advice when I was searching for graduate schools. And she said, never go anywhere where you're going to be the expert on the topic that you're passionate about. And those words really stuck with me because when I was looking for graduate programs, I wanted to go to places where 
there were other experts. So there were people who were going to challenge me in ways that had not yet been challenged. So I think when I was making decisions of where to go for my master's and then also to where to go for my PhD, it was doing that work and researching who are the people there, what questions are they asking. And then once I went there, that's where the emotion and the heart kicked in. Did I feel like I was going to be supported? Did I feel like these people are genuinely going to care about me? Are they creating communities within their programs? And as soon as I got some kind of inkling of that, that's when I knew that I had make the best decision. And I think I've been very lucky that both my master's degree and my PhD were from places that did just that. And where I was pushed appropriately as it related to academics, but that I found some really good lifelong friends and connections that I really valued. You've uh, worked really hard, and now we're very happy that you have a position, tenure-track uh, position. You can tell our audience where you'll be going. And then my follow-up question will be, what will you be working on? What, are you try- what new knowledge are you trying to bring to our field? Yeah, so I will be a tenure-track assistant professor of administration and higher education at Auburn University, so I'm definitely looking forward to that new chapter of my life. In terms of what work that I've done and then will continue on doing, my, my spiel that I think a lot of academics develop is that my research largely focuses on advancing critical perspectives on college student development and identity. We often hear the adage that college is a time to explore and that where people will grow. So my research then asks, how is it that structures of inequality like racism, heterosexism, genderism, and the ways that they manifest within colleges, how do those structures influence this process of development and exploration that we have come to associate with college? A lot of our understandings of the ways that college students develop come from fields like psychology or social psychology, which oftentimes focus on the student as the unit of analysis uh, without taking a more macro perspective of looking at how is that structures and particularly oppressive structures influence this process. And a lot of my work has focused on those with multiple marginalized identities, largely queer and trans people of color on college campuses. So that's going to be work that I continue on doing. And in addition to that, I'm also going to take a more specific look at the structures themselves. And so I see myself doing more work in interviewing staff at universities and how they create environments or don't create environments that are welcoming for those with multiple marginalized identities. That's really interesting. And especially someone who currently works and might as well work in this field in the future, it sounds like something I would definitely love to have a read of and, you know, see how to do better myself and what to look out for and how to make a more welcoming community for everyone on on a campus. And going along that and wanting to read your work, you have been published a number of times. How does that process begin, like from the start all the way to sort of receiving that book and with your name on it? How does that work? For those who are familiar with the publishing process, we know it's a, it's a long one. It takes really a couple of years, if not more, to go from that idea that you have to finally seeing something in a journal or in a book. What I oftentimes tell students and tell myself is really good research comes out of two criteria. One, is there a gap in the literature, right? Is there currently, do we not have this knowledge out there in scholarship? And the second thing in higher education, and the thing that I don't, I think sometimes students forget about is, is there a problem of practice? 
is something not happening right now on college campuses because we have that gap in the literature. I oftentimes joke with my students that there can be no research on redheaded students in the Midwest. But does that mean that something is not happening because we don't have that scholarship? So those are the two things that I oftentimes think about when, I, when I'm when i developing a project. And from there, you do the process of collecting data. I'm primarily a qualitative researcher, which means that I solicit stories and talk to people about their experiences. And from there, go along the process of analysis, writing it all up. And then you submit it out into a journal, and that takes quite some time to hear back from people's peers in the field who are going to give you feedback on your manuscript. And really, the feedback is there to make it better. That You might go back and forth a little bit in terms of adhering to that feedback. And then finally, hopefully, it gets accepted and people read it, whether it's in classrooms or practitioners. And really, the dream is that people will use that to affect positive change. Sometimes in the academy, you you hear the term and the phrase publish or perish. So people publish for the sake of publishing. But really what I try to remind others is that we really should be publishing and researching the things that we're passionate about. And we should approach this process with an ethic of love and care. And so as long as I'm continuing with that ethic of love and care, I found that I I get so much energy from writing and from being able to hopefully affect positive change. In the work that you do, in the publishing you do, there is a rhythm, I'm sure, that you have to develop for yourself. How much creativity is brought into the writing process rather than the kind of standard uh, process that certain aspects have to be fulfilled for a journal article or for a book, uh, kind of pro forma standard? Where, where does that, that line lie between the two? I think we're seeing academics, and specifically academics in higher ed, really try to push the boundaries on what merits scholarship and what merits research. And so I also find myself having to break habits that I've fallen into because really people can consider publishing to be formulaic at times, right? You know, certain pieces have to go where and things like that. And so I've had some really great people in my life who, I mean, as as I mentioned before, I'm a very structured, very neat person. And so I've had some really great people who have pushed me to say, well, how about we think about it in this way? How about we present these participants' narratives in ways that we haven't done so before? So I'm actually, I recently submitted a book proposal using the data from my dissertation. And if that comes to fruition, I'm really looking forward to writing a book because I think it's going to push me as a writer to be a lot more creative in ways that I don't think I've had the chance to yet in your like academic journal. And so I really look forward to that opportunity to be more creative, to ultimately do just a different job of representing the participants' narratives and centering their stories in ways that might communicate better to audiences beyond just academics. Helpful. Thank you. And sort of like learning about you know, yourself and your whole creative process and your academic process and how you've sort of taken this route. What are some of your most like important learning moments during your PhD and honestly, even your master's? Some of the biggest learning moments have been conversations with mentors. And I think the probably the largest one has been carving out who I want to be as a scholar, right? I, as I've been mentioning, there are certain patterns that I think academics can fall into whether it's publishing just for the sake of publishing or publishing in certain journals because they're considered top tiers or things like that. 
or pushing teaching to the wayside. And for me, part of the biggest learning moments has been knowing that I don't have to do it that way, right? And so teaching is always going to be my biggest love. I love research, but there's just something about teaching and interacting with students that that will always come first. When it comes to my scholarship, not searching for acclaim or productivity for the sake of productivity, but instead being really authentic with the work that I'm doing and ultimately knowing how to then push myself to communicate my research and scholarship in ways that are going to impact the people that we're, we're discussing, right? And so if I'm interested in helping the experiences queer and trans people of color on college campuses, how is it that I can I disseminate knowledge beyond your stereotypical journal article to make sure that it's getting to these populations and getting to these students? So th- I think those have been largely my biggest learning moments is just knowing who I want to be in the field and knowing that I don't have to be what I've seen and instead embracing this genuine quality and embracing authenticity within the work. You've been able to work with some really talented faculty members doing really wonderful things, trying to understand the college experience uh, and the impediments that exist. One of the impediments that I find that's really challenging is the whole question of um, mental health and self-care for our students today. I was wondering if you had any reflections that you would want to share with practitioners on that, and certainly our students, about this importance of self-care and really thinking about how do I put my best self forward and what kind of resources do I need for myself? I think the conversation of self-care and mental health has been such a big one in higher ed. And I have friends who are even pushing back on this notion of of self-care, right? Because once again, we're isolating the individual as the only person who bears the responsibility of taking care of oneself, as opposed to thinking about care as a community process, right? And so I think that's one of the first things that comes to mind is how is it that we look out for one another within college communities? In addition to that, I think mental health is something that I continue to reflect on with my work, especially with those who have multiple marginalized identities, right? These students who are not only experiencing racism on college campuses, for example, but they're also experiencing sexism, right? Or they're also experiencing genderism, these others issues. And what I found in my own research is that students are doing a lot of work in terms of unlearning the negative messages that they have been conditioned to believe, right? I had a participant who once said that they had literally been told white is right and straight is great. And so I I think about those those messages and, and how we in college campuses need to do very intentional work on pushing back on this. And how is it that we're programming or creating initiatives for people who are at the most marginalized position in society. I also think our college uh, counseling centers and counseling in general, I, I believe, need to be better trained in terms of identity conscious counseling. So knowing not only how to deal with larger issues of mental health, but how is it that we're dealing with mental health as it relates to identity-based concerns. And so I think those three reflections on pushing back on the notion of and the whole thing, the sex of practitioners in higher education, creating initiatives, programs for those who are most marginalized, and three identities, conscious and centric counseling are where I see colleges moving toward in the future, hopefully, with this knowledge. Thank you for that. And, and I appreciate you kind of reminding me of, of certainly your roots 
curious personalis and the importance of taking care of the whole person. Uh, your Jesuit high school, I'm sure, had a little bit <laughs> to do with that as well. I have no doubt, like my Jesuit education as well. Right, right. Great. And then sort of bouncing off that a little bit, you sort of spoke about um, people that are reminding you of certain things and influencing your work. Are any of these people your old RA alums and are you still in contact with any of them? Time for shout outs. Shout out time. <laughs> yeah, shout out. So funny enough, I literally just got off the phone with a dear friend of mine, Emily Stutz, who is an RA Founders. We were summer assistants together. Susan Hua, who is an RA in Gramercy. She is also now in higher education. So I see her constantly, talk with her constantly. Brian Plout, who is my both uh, Founders RA and my first year roommate. We make time for one another and catch up every once in a while. And then there are a lot of ResLife staff. So we, funny enough, Ohio State has a lot of ResLife alum. So Ashley Staples, who was an RHD at Brittany and Lafayette, is in my doctoral cohort. Jennifer Sheridan, who is my RHD at Gramercy, is also here in Columbus. And then Matt Mayhew, who was an FFIR, is a faculty member here at Ohio State's program now. So I've constantly been surrounded with really outstanding and talented NYU people, which I'm always grateful for. Thank you for that. Let's move to speed round, a chance for you mm-hmm. to remember some of those memories for you. What? Let's jump into NRHH. What was your high point as the president of NRHH? It was always just reading the OTMs and OTYs at, at the end of the year and being able just to take in all of the amazing work that people were doing at NYU. I think that was incredible. Did you study away it whilst you were here? I didn't study away in the traditional sense. I did do alternative breaks, one of which was with Tom. So I went to Trinidad. I went to Dominican Republic. I was a site leader for Buenos Aires. And then through a scholars program, I went to Madrid for a week, which was phenomenal. You definitely went abroad. That, that I would say that counts. He did. <laughs> we should throw in, because we haven't said it yet. It was part of the Anne Bryce Scholarship Program that we went to Trinidad and Tobago. So uh, wonderful time. Favorite NYU professor? I'll have to say Matt Mayhew, because he taught a class, Who Are You and Why Are You Here?, which was really my first kind of intro to student development theory. So he sparked that interest. And the best dining hall. This is a hotly debated topic. I was going to say, I'm going to have to say Kimmel, and specifically Kimmel Pasta, I have really fond memories of. It's not there anymore. It's not there. Oh, no. happens, Elliot. They happen here. Finally, what was your most memorable RA or res life experience? Oh, my gosh, so many. I would always say my favorite moments were at the beginning and the end. So the beginning in terms of welcome week with my residents, I would have a program every day where we would explore different things. And then it would culminate with walking the Brooklyn Bridge and a trip to the Brooklyn Ice Cream Factory. And just seeing them, I think, take in the city at night for the first time was was a really fulfilling feeling. And then at the end of the year, I had them write letters at the beginning of the year. And so they would read those letters to themselves, being able to see that growth from that first moment where they were taking in the city to now a year later. Those are the moments that still take a ticket with me to the day. I'm stealing that idea. I'm yeah, just she's writing it down. down. Yeah, and I'm it. writing it down for next year. <laughs> <laughs> are we doing one more? Should we do one more speed round? And did you have any celebrity sightings? And Alec Baldwin doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Clearly, a lot of people saw Alec Baldwin. I will say Brooke Shields mm, at that's a the good Sting one. Coffee right, right, right across the corner from Founders. 
she would go in the mornings and I would see her from time to time and, and pretended that I didn't notice her, of course. But yeah, Brooke Shields. Antonio, thanks so much for spending time with Tom and I to discuss your journey and where your life after NYU has taken you. As always, thanks to our listeners. You can stay connected with RA alums who are living the Dream School alumni version live. Antonio, I have to say you bring a smile to my face. You are one of those people who have touched so many people's lives just by your presence, your positivity, your always ability to make sure that people feel good about themselves and see the goodness in their life and how that goodness has impacted you is really a remarkable quality that you have. So thank you so much for being on and giving some of us lessons about how to do our jobs better and how to think about others better. I really appreciate it. That's very kind. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I also want to give special thanks to my engineer tonight, Juliana Fonseco Alesso, who's doing all of this editing from Paris, where she is studying away this semester, and to our current professional staff and our alums, such as Taris and Ty and Justin Lerner, who did so much to help these alums gain skills to be better people and to be better professionals. If you like tonight's show, look for more content on the website. And if you want to know RA's favorite books, go to the website, whatthey'rereading.blogspot.com. And finally, feel free to tweet at me for a shout out. Until next time, remember, our heart only grows bigger every time we say thank you, please, and you're a great person. Go out there and make this community better.